Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. It's January and it's Jan Goldsmith here and I'm still away. I'm sitting on a beach somewhere reading some books, but these are two particularly good books books that I read through last year. So listen in. Holly Throsby has a knack of breathing life into small town communities and I've had a delightful time getting to know the people who reside in Cedar Valley. Welcome back Holly. Thank you for having me. Ah, the book starts with Benita or Benny Miller arriving at Cedar Valley. Benny Miller is a 21-year-old girl from Sydney. She goes to Cedar Valley, which is a, a town about two and a half hours south, a fictional town. She goes to Cedar Valley seeking information about her mother, who has recently died. Her mother's old friend, Odette Fisher, who's somewhat mysterious herself, uh, lives in Cedar Valley mm. and has offered Benny this empty cottage in the town um, to stay in for as long as she wants. And so Benny arrives, yeah, full of questions, I guess. So Vivian Moon, Odette's old friend, was Benny's mother. But she was brought up by a father, Frank, in Sydney. How did Benny feel about a mother? I really enjoyed writing her as a character. She's very conflicted, I think, because, you know, the subject of a mother who is somewhat estranged from their child is still, um, I guess, a, a taboo topic. She has a desperate kind of longing to understand and know her. Yeah, but she just... also, I think, is ang- is almost... I mean, she certainly has anger and resentment, but I, I, I think it's more just... A, a really distinct ambivalence. Because we even said, you know, the, her most pride possession is in a box sitting in the passenger seat as she's driving into Cedar Valley. And what was in the box? Yeah, she carries with her photographs of her mother um, and some of her mother and Odette and just various ones that she's sort of collected over time. Um, I think those sort of totems, you know, things like photographs and memories, they're, they're so important oh, to us yeah. as humans. <laughs> they're always the things you want to kind of retrieve from the burning house. And I guess she's kind of had a bit of a burning house in terms of her childhood, so she's kind of holding on to those things. There was another stranger who came into Cedar Valley on exactly the same day. Now, he came, a quote from the book, in a brown wool suit and a wide striped tie, clothing too warm for the weather. Where did he choose to sit? <laughs> so the strange man, the mysterious man, he sits in front, he, he walks down and sits on the main road on the footpath in front of the antique store, which is called Cedar Valley Curios and Old Wares. And he kind of stares at, across the street in an aimless fashion and is there for several hours and does some odd stretching. And <gasps> Yes, so <laughs> we're going to hear just a snippet from Cedar Valley by Holly Throsby. Um, the man looked to be in his mid-50s at the most and he was so composed, no signs of distress or discomfort. He hadn't vomited or bled, he hadn't even collapsed. He was slightly slumped, sure, but surprisingly upright for being so dead. <laughs> so dead. <laughs> Just precisely that, so dead. So he's dead. So he does eventually, yes, after sitting, um, he does die. <laughs> As we said, these two strangers came to town on the same day, but it's not this year. When's the book written? The book is set in 1993. 
which was really just the fault of I blame Goodwood for this because <laughs> the book I wrote, Goodwood, was the, my first novel was set in 1992. And when I was finished coming to the end of that book, I just knew that I wanted to stay within this universe that I created. I just felt like my work in it wasn't done. But I did feel like my work in Goodwood was done and I wanted to leave those characters that are suspended there as they are left at the end of that book. But for me, I just wanted to, you know, have a, a similar time setting so that some characters could pop across and indeed some do. They do, don't they? Yes. Mm. Yes. There's reminders through the book. You know, we have Fred, Benny's next door neighbour, has this great head of hair, a bit like Bob Hawke's hair. <laughs> Bob Hawke had such, mem- has such uh, memorable well, hair. Yes. I mean, no Australian won't understand that reference. <laughs> No older Australian. Perhaps true. (laughs) And of course, turning on the dial of the radio, no iPads or anything now, listen to Phil Collins and Willie Nelson. There's a slower pace, more talk, and also no whiz-bang police procedure. So the detectives, you know, taking photos at, well, is it a crime scene if somebody just dies on you on the footpath? They have to wait to get the film processed. Death of a Stranger, Outside a Curio Shop, Crime Scene, Espionage, Thriller or Mystery. So let's have a look at the police. Now, why has Detective Sergeant Anthony Simons come back to his hometown? But his mother, Elsie Simmons, has moved to Cedar Valley, which she finds a lot more enjoyable for her sort of sensibilities. So he's gone there to help her. She's ailing um, and sort of dementia is setting in for her. Um, So he's uprooted and is living kind of somewhat reluctantly in this smaller town and thinking it's not that great. And he's, of of course, the detective that is in charge of working out who this mysterious man is. Mm -hmm. And the police kind of procedural element of this book was incredibly enjoyable for me to write. As a reader of crime fiction, I really enjoyed kind of playing with that and having these very kind of laconic somewhat hapless police in charge of this. Well, the other two policemen, we've got uh, Constable Gus Franklin. Gussie, as you quote him, he's a big boy, so he's the wardrobe in a uniform, if you can imagine that size. And thin-hipped James Hall, he's a local who used to be dacked at high school regularly. <laughs> now, dacked, it's such an old term, but it's it's great. So we've got a detective sergeant back in where Noe's mum's in uh, care, and but even she's astute enough to know that she hopes he doesn't bugger the marriage up because he li- she likes her daughter-in-law. Then again, there's the father, who was the best mayor of this area, that um, he's constantly told, but he was the worst husband and father. Let's just read what he's like as a father from page 100, please. Mm, Sure. He made his instant coffee and drank it standing up in the kitchen while the girls watched cartoons and Jenny stomped around making lunches, lunches with an absent kind of irritation. Simmons didn't ask her what was wrong. He didn't offer to help her. He didn't, inter- he didn't interact with his daughters or wash up his wheat bix bowl or his coffee mug. He left his pyjama pants and T-shirt on the floor of the bathroom, his used dental floss dangling oh, over the side so... of the sink and left for work. Oh, in such a concise paragraph, <laughs> we certainly don't like that guy. And he's also rather keen on Dr Ping Williams, the government medical officer. He gets a stirring in his loins when he <laughs> hears Ping calm whisper over the telephone. What is so peculiar when they're investigating this dead stranger? Well, they find the guy oddly dead and, you know, townsfolk gather, of course. Um, But when they examine him, he is bereft of any identification. And, you know, of course, in a sort of vintage um, suit, which is 
at odds with the climate and he does yeah i guess it's generally the fact that he doesn't he, he doesn't have a wallet he doesn't um, have anything to identify him, and so it, what Tony Simmons thinks is going to be a really simple thing turns out to be oh. completely unsimple. And all of his uh, clothing labels are also cut off. Yes. Oh, so weird here stuff. we come to. <laughs> oh, do we ever? Here we come to a, a, a reference to a, a great unsolved mystery or crime. We're not still not sure from Adelaide from 1948, the case of the Summerton man, which readers I and mean, listeners of this um, show, if they're into crime and mystery or if they're from Adelaide, have probably heard of. So it's a complete mystery. A hundred years ago, the Summerton man and the things that he had in his pocket are even similar to the dead man on the footpath now. Back to Benny. In a box of books in the in the shed of the little cottage she's living in, she finds one with her mother's writing in the margin. And this is what her mother's written. The day on which you are without passionate love is the most wasted day of your life. So what was the book? Relating to the Summerton Man, yeah. um, Vivian, uh, Benny's mother, is obsessed. Well, was obsessed with the case because she's you know grew up in Adelaide and was young at the time um, of its occurrence. But linked to that case is a book of Persian poetry, uh, the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, which is a famous and in some circles infamous book of poetry because of its linking to this case. But it is a you know it was a very famous book at the time, and it's full of poems that have lines such as that. Mm. Um, that is a quote of Omar Khayyam. I'm not sure if it's in the Rubaiyat itself, but it is in one of his other works. And so Vivian is really obsessed with this work and this poetry. And Benny is kind of horrified, I guess, because the the poems really celebrate. Of, of, it's very much about sense pleasure. Um, there's a lot of references to sex and mm. wine and and sort of living each day to the fullest, but in quite a hedonistic sense. And so I guess for her, that is pretty challenging. Yeah, to find out that this is about your mother. Yeah. And then sort of reflecting on her father, you know, and for Father Frank, and this is sort of something from... Uh, the book. He chewed his fingernails and admitted nothing of his true feelings. She pitied him for being so hopeless, but understood now that he was still still sad and still in love with Vivian Moon. <laughs> oh dear. I think there are a lot of people that are in love with Vivian Moon. <laughs> but yeah, like I guess for me the book was really a lot about working out what the appropriate boundaries are between parents and children and what we really need to know about our parents you know what mm. I mean oftentimes like firstly do we ever really know them and secondly when we do is, is sometimes too much too much <laughs> you know I think this is the kind of journey that Benny goes on herself in wanting to know and then being a kind of horrified slash disgusted by what she discovers um resenting her own curiosity mm. resenting Vivian and it's just a sort of it was an exploration around all of those issues you did it well too. In every community, there's a meeting spot, and this is the pub. Tom and Annie Boyd run it, and Benny gets a job there. And so when she starts to meet the people that she's serving, so do we, which is a lovely way to introduce the community to us. But of course, a pub like this has always sort of holds all the meetings, and the book club has been meeting there for 27 years and the priority of everything. But now there's two book clubs. What happened? Uh, yeah. <laughs> One of the book clubs in this book is inspired by the the book tour I did for Goodwood. I did meet yes. a lot of women from book clubs. Um, sadly, there were only women. I never met a man from mm. a book club, which I think um, is a shame. But, yeah, there is one book club um, in Cedar Valley in which... 
which every fourth meeting, because some of the women have trouble finishing the books, they go into Clark and see a film instead, <laughs> which which is what a book club that I met down in Victoria told me, which I thought was great. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the pub in this book is is the meeting place, which is, you know, as is the case in so many country towns, this town is visually very much based on Braidwood, which is a town in New South Wales, and the exterior of the pub described in mm-hmm. Cedar Valley is a direct um, reference to the pub in Braidwood. And, you know, my family and I, my partner and our daughter went to this pub. You know, I I'd certainly did a lot of travelling as a form of research slash enjoyment for myself <laughs> and my family. But going to the pub in Braidwood, you do feel like you feel in this pub. You know, by the end of this one night that we spent, at this pub playing pool with our daughter who was three so she wasn't really playing pool she was sort of standing on a chair and flipping the balls around the table aided by two lovely local men with big beards and bellowing laughs or kind of like two Santa Clauses Um, but you do feel like a local and I think that's the one thing about pub culture in Australia small towns which is so beautiful I mean there's a lot of things about pub culture that's really not beautiful Mm. at all but that is one thing that I think we can celebrate is that sense of community that you get. Yeah, the, well, you created it quite beautifully here in Cedar Valley. So, look, I was 30 pages from the end and I was wondering how in 30 pages were you going to solve the murder and how could you explain the mystery and how could you kind of resettle or calm all those towns. Did I did I achieve that? <laughs> you sure did. <laughs> I've got a few questions. <laughs> I'm still worrying about that Tony's marriage. Anyway, that'll be fine. And of course, all the adultery that's going on. I thought that was just hysterical. <laughs> and unfortunately, uh, adultery really does go on. The more you live life, the more you realise. <laughs> and 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 the wife's so blind to it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the I line. think a lot of wives are very willfully blind to it and probably some husbands as well. There's selective blindness that goes on in all of our lives. <laughs> so Holly Throsby has created another small country town brought to life by townsfolk full of interests and uh, idiosyncrasies, especially when there is a mystery to be solved. Look, Holly Throsby, thank you so much for such a fun read. Thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And now for another very different book, but just as interesting. Margaret Morgan is an author I haven't spoken with before, but I'm absolutely amazed at her social, political and scientific understandings of the here and now and the future. Welcome, Margaret. Hello. Lovely to be here. (laughs) So, 20 years from now, there are two Americas, the Union of North America and the Confederate Federation of America, and it's Taxoplasmosis pestis that divides them. Now, this is the book, The Second Cure. What is that? <laughs> Toxoplasmosis pestis is my invention. It's a, um, it's a, a mutated version of a common parasite that does exist called Toxoplasmosis gondii, which is transmitted by cats to humans um, and to lots of prey animals. And the fascinating thing about Toxoplasmosis gondii, the real one, is that it changes the, the brains of the prey animals like rats and mice so that they lose their fear of cats so, and they will actually be attracted to cats and then, you know, get eaten by the cat. Um, and that means that it, it, the, the, it's that host behavioural modification that allows the parasite to be able to be transferred between species. This is a lot of science, <laughs> which is fantastic. But let's just um, put it down to small things like 
the country, America's been divided because there's those that have it and those that haven't. Yes. Now, we're taking the story into Australia. Here, it's Winnie Bayless. She's 60 years old and she's at a loss. And she has had her dead cat stuffed. She's also infected. And one of the <coughs> symptoms of this is just terrible for her. What is it? She's lost her religion, her religious faith. Um, and she's been devoted to her church for her life. Her, her, for, her, her dead husband <coughs> was, a, um, was a, a minister of religion. And she's been involved with the church throughout her existence. And she has... Um, it's devastating for her because that is one of the effects of this of this parasite is it it makes people lose their religious belief not everybody but a lot of them and it also increases their fearlessness and promiscuity and certainly surprises a 60-year-old Winnie with some of the things she's doing. <laughs> That's right, yes. Winnie's, Winnie's um, never been reckless in her life, but suddenly she is and she doesn't really understand where all this is coming from. Well, she's got a son, Richard Bayless, who welcomes the feat in his system. Yes. Why? Yes. Well, Richard's a composer and a painter and one of the other side effects uh, of the parasite is something called synesthesia, which is a condition where there is a blending of the different senses. So people might smell colour or mm. when they hear a sound, they might see that in a colour or hear it and taste it. Or So for him, it's, it's a really exciting thing. It unleashes a whole new level of creativity in him. He works out a way that he can write music that gives people orgasms. Yes, he does. He does. He's on a bit of a winner there. Yes. And so he, sends, he sets up syndomes everywhere, which was just so funny. Now, but Richard has a partner, Charlie Zinn. She's a scientist and an academic. This is a quote. The responsibility that comes with her new power and fame felt like a burden, not a prize. What was it that she discovered? Well, she finds she does the, um, the genetic analysis of the new of the parasite, the mutated parasite, and she's seeking a cure for it. So she's on the verge of a cure at the point that you yeah. mentioned. Um, and then, of course, once there's a cure, there's also a, a vaccine that's mm. created, which some people love and some people hate. So yes, um, this is the quote. Everyone was clamouring for answers, devastated by the loss of their pets, frightened by the effects on people, and the internet was thick with rumour and conspiracy. Could that happen today? (laughs) (laughs) And as you say, the the groups uh, against her discovery are people like the Thetes themselves, those that are infected who say, but it's wonderful, it's Mm. just wonderful. And those against, of course are the religious, the Christian society, the young nationals. Now, she's an academic and there's so many people courting her to have, to, to want her to work for them. Yes, that's right. Mm, there's uh, universities, of course, private research, and even her ex-husband, Shadrach Zinn. And there's the political approaches. This brings us to Richard's sister, Bridget. What's her job? Bridget's a um, an investigative journalist and political journalist, and she's um, she's based in Queensland. In and Queensland is where there is a rise of of a left of a very right wing Christian mm. um, religious theocratic um, movement, and she's 
trying to get her head around that, trying to explore it. Um, and the new Premier of, mm. Queen, of Queensland, Jeff e- Jack Jack, Jack Effenberg um, is somebody who who she has a sort of love-hate relationship with. Uh, look, there's another quote which I think sums him up very well. He's like an eccentric uncle you hid from your friends. Yeah, really inappropriate. <laughs> yeah, but she sees him building this political power and he's not only become the new um, Premier of Queensland, he's also a pastor in a yes. in a religion a religious church yes and it's an it's an evangelical um mega church that he's involved with with his wife Marion and they've set it up together and yeah and it's really about the complete breakdown of the separation of church and state up in Queensland and then subsequently the um the secession of far north Queensland from the rest of Queensland and then from Australia. Look, it, it sounds ridiculous, but it's such a believable read. <laughs> you think, oh dear. But who aren't allowed in this republic? Oh, pretty much any anybody. I mean, obviously, the, anybody who's got um, who's infected. Well, maybe a- we should have one of his very first speeches from page one hundred and sixteen about you know just how he sees this republic of cornucopia and what he wants it to have. Okay, so this is him in Parliament um, re- responding to the leader of the opposition. He, he says. Well, let the leader of the opposition understand, Mr Speaker. Let him understand that his day has passed. He's not in charge anymore. And the days of pandering to the feminists, to the homosexuals, to the drug addicts and the tree huggers, to the militant unionists and the Aborigines on the public teat and the student radicals and the criminal bikey gangs, those days are over. They are over, Mr Speaker. This week, my government will introduce bills to combat the scourge of immorality. Watch this space, Mr Speaker. Watch this space. He certainly does put in uh, borders, very restrictive to get in and out. And he also has the QSSA, special security guards. There's so much surveillance. Mm. Another quote, in Capricornia, paranoia equated to survival. And it's the subtle things that come in too. Everybody started to wear face masks. It's the women who continue wearing them. Yes, it sort of it starts off as a kind of a misunderstood notion about how the parasite is spread, but then subsequently it starts to carry a connotation of purity, and that evolves into sexual purity as well and religious yeah. purity. And, of course, all those female hygienic products, they're hidden from men. You know, you have to buy them under the counter because you don't want to embarrass a man by having to buy tampons. Yes, yes. (laughs) Well, this could just be like Big Brother, but we follow the more personal story of Tricia Townsend. Why is she such a devotee? Well, you know, she's she loves the church. She loves it even more than the family that she abandons at one point. It gives her meaning and she loves the simplicity of the answers that it gives her, both, you know, spiritual and the one that she chooses, the Effenberg's religion, is not a religion that is challenging in any way. Mm. You don't have to do any thinking. You just follow what follow it tells rules. you. And I think that that's a very alluring kind of 
religion for certain types of people. She's welcomed into this religion as a daughter of the Song of Light. She has an office in the family mansion. She makes interventions, quoting the gospel and having people arrested. She became a warrior in the service of God. (laughs) (laughs) Margaret Morgan, this, this book just gets thicker and thicker. Bridget, now she's the journalist. She knows to keep a low profile but is still getting some news out. But what does she experience at an airport? Because it's so difficult to get out. Of yes. this place, yes, there's not just the you know the body scan and the X-rays. It's yeah, it's DNA testing and all sorts of stuff, and pregnancy testing, and pregnancy testing because the preg- um, abortion is of course strictly illegal mm. now, and so they don't want anyone leaving the country to go and have an abortion. And yeah, it's it's a it's a very nasty place. It's not it's hard to get into and it's hard to get out of. She's at the airport and she sees uh, a mother and a child and they're separated because one becomes positive and she wonders, now what happens? And, Mm. of course, she feels very much alone until somebody from the inside wants to talk with her. So, as we say, the book moves from science to politics to thriller and so many other weird and wonderful bits. The story came around through a cat virus. Uh, Fascinating, all the business that expand from dead cats. <laughs> yes, that's right. Well, that's one of the things that fascinated me, the idea that if the mind is is something that is simply a product of the brain and you change the brain through an external circumstance, then you change the mind. And if you change the mind, you change the society. So, you know, I just really wanted to explore the, the ramifications, the rippling out effect of of that change shows everywhere, doesn't it? With we spoke about Charlie's ex husband who wrote a scientific paper mm. about brain changes and got vilified. Yes. <laughs> it, it sort of jumps into the future quite a bit, and we have home computer computers with much greater powers. That the household computer, which will basically run everything, which is you know this this sort of stuff, all of the technology that I suggest in you know the future part of the novel is all stuff that's just oh. around the corner it's yeah. it's absolutely nearly there the automatic car with the uh 3d printer that you would just instruct to fix it yes. you know, i thought this was fantastic with any type of division jeff evenberg he it sort of did mention very early on well perhaps we should just put an eye for infected on everybody's forehead Yes, yes. And those that are infected go along with this and have a tattooed, not an I as in the letter, but an I, and use uh, inks from squid and cuttlefish yes. to make it luminous and change colour. Yes. Mm, look, um, there's a scientific language, which I just, oh, the epigenetic effects, the synthesized oots, the hypermetabolism, and, and some, some that are so long like FDGPT. <laughs> but there's, it's also a story of love and, and relationship breakdown. And I love that in between all the chapters, there's bits of science lectures, official press releases from the health department, and even a snippet from the book published by Pe- Penguin Random House in 2038. <laughs> they, they were the publishers of this one too. <laughs> How will it end? With a war or perhaps with a second cure? Very clever, Margaret Morgan. Very oh, clever. But I do have to ask, there is a quote in here. Religion is regarded by the common people as true, 
by the wise as false and by the rulers as useful. Where did that come from? I've totally forgotten who said it now. Oh, so you didn't make it up? No, 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 no. It's a, it's. A, I think in the book it's, it refers to who says it. But no, it's a... Um, Oh, it was it was someone It was a good one. Yeah, it's a great it's a great quote. It's an absolutely yeah. Well, it was a great read. So well it was a great read. It, it was The Secret Cure by Margaret Morgan and prior to that it was Helen Throsby's book. Next week, David'll be back. <laughs> 